is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today, Andrew Carmines, is a successful business owner and pillar of the community on Hilton Head Island, where he was born and raised. As the president of Hudson's Seafood House on the Docks, founder of the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival, and a board member of multiple conservation organizations, Andrew has his hands full these days. But he wasn't always so focused and together. After almost failing out of college, Andrew took a break from studying to train as a fly fishing guide in Cooper Landing, Alaska, a remote and wild area of the country ripe for adventures. Living in a trailer, experiencing close encounters with bears, and learning to navigate the churning Kenai River taught Andrew about his own capabilities, grew his confidence, and ultimately helped him thrive back at college and beyond. On this episode, we discuss the ways Andrew's polite Southern upbringing has been an asset on both his travels and in his career, the ways Andrew's ADHD makes him particularly well-suited to extreme situations, and why you don't know good seafood until you've tried shrimp from the South Carolina ocean. This episode is sponsored by Hilton Head Island, America's favorite island. Well, it's nice to meet you. How are you? So you're in Hilton Head today. Yes, in Hilton Head. I was just telling uh, the ladies here, my restaurant is closed for repairs and maintenance. So I'm uh, basically have packed all of possible meetings uh, from the last year into two weeks. Oh, that so, sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a lot of it's fun stuff. You know, we're planning our uh, annual uh, seafood festival, which is a big fundraiser for a foundation that we have. And so it's kind of afforded me the opportunity to really dig my teeth into that because it's it's just a lot of planning and, and a uh, big team. So uh, getting everybody together and getting working on that's been good. That's exciting. Does Hilton Head have like a down season or is it year round? popular yeah choice. yeah not uh, it, that's a good question it it used to have like when i i started back working at the restaurants a family business i started back as a manager entry-level manager in 2006 and just to see how much it's changed since then i mean we used to uh take a deep breath at the end of october and hold our breath until march really and now i mean if it's nice outside we get so many people that come from Atlanta and Charlotte, and they just book on a much shorter window. If they check the weather and it's beautiful for a long weekend, they'll come down, which is amazing. So it's the island stays very, very busy if if the weather's cooperating. The first two weeks of January is traditionally very, very slow. Yeah. What's the weather like now? Like 50, maybe, but it's it's it'll be 60 probably today. And then, um, you know, yesterday or Sunday rather was 72, 73 degrees. So that sounds, that sounds decent. It's very cold in New York right now. So is that where you are? You're in the city? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn, right by Prospect uh, Park. Yeah, it seems like everybody that does media, TV, podcasts, all that stuff is living in Brooklyn now because we just did a thing with Bon Appetit a couple of weeks ago and all of the producers and everybody lives in Brooklyn. I mean, loads of that industry is based here, although a lot of people have left during the pandemic because with remote work, it's just so easy to travel around now and go to other smaller places, which is nice. 
Yeah. But anyway, let's get into the fun stuff. Where okay. did your love of travel originate? Well, my parents were amazing when we were growing up. It wasn't Christmas presents. It was Christmas trips. You know, we probably bucked them on that a little bit and, you know, whined about not getting you know, toys and stuff like that. But, you know, we'd always take ski trips over the holidays, traveled to Africa, to Europe, a lot of adventure travel, hunting trips, fishing trips. That was, there was never really uh, idle time on our trips. And as I've gotten older, you know, I love to still love to do the fishing trips and the hunting trips, but we try to bookend those trips with some type of cultural activity, dining, stuff like that. Because the, the big eye opener for me was my dad and mom and I went to Africa when I was probably 20. And it was a safari. So we went and, you know, spent 10 days in Africa on safari. And then I went to Johannesburg and flew home. And when I got back, I was like, what was I thinking? You know, I should have stayed for a week on the front end, a week on the back end and traveled the whole country. I mean, when am I going to go back to Africa? So, you know, valuable lessons learned. And um, I'm, I think uh, as, I, as my kids grow up, we're, we're really looking forward to, to doing a lot of traveling with them. And they're getting to that age now. They're six, eight and 10. So they're getting to that age now where you can take them anywhere, which is just great. We just got back from the mountains. so. A little bit more hectic traveling with little ones, but still a lot of fun. And I know you were born on Hilton Head Island in quite dramatic fashion. <laughs> yeah, I was actually born. So they didn't have a maternity ward on Hilton Head. That, so this is in 78. And uh, there was a Hilton Head hospital at the time, but they didn't have the capability of delivering babies there. So my dad was working at the restaurant. My mom was at our house in Palmetto Dunes, which that's where we lived at the time. And so my mom called my dad and said, you need to come home and get me. We got to go. And my dad came home, picked my mom up. And because of the time that had elapsed, I guess I was just ready to come out. And so he stopped at the base of the Paris Island Bridge in a light rain and delivered me on the bench seat of the Dodge pickup truck right there uh, on, on the creek. And the story goes that the, the, they got a police escort to drive the remainder of the distance to the hospital. And my mom said that my dad was such a wreck when they got to the hospital, they took me and my dad in and left her sitting in a wheelchair in the parking lot. <laughs> oh my God, what a night. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so dramatic fashion for sure. You said it, said it the right way. It was uh, always a great story to tell though. And what was it like growing up on the island? Amazing. I mean, the par big part of the reason why I made uh, one of the reasons that I chose to come back was just because my experience growing up here was so amazing. You know, to be fair, back then, where we lived, uh, we were close to the beach. And there was, you know, on oceanfront, there was, you know, one house for every five or six lots. So there was a lot of space to play. And the island was generally very, very safe. And we were two boys, uh, my brother and I, I just remember waking up in the morning. I was always an early riser. I would remember waking up in the morning when I was as young as six years old and going straight down to the beach and just exploring on my own. And, you know, as I got older, it was surfing and uh, playing sports and that. But um, a, lot of, a lot of time out on the water, a lot of fishing, a lot of shrimping. You know, it was really idyllic. And 
I, I think that when it was time to kind of make the decision whether to come home or not, uh, was a pretty easy decision for me um, because it's just such a special place. And there's so many nooks and crannies and places to have adventures. And there's still, even with uh, the growth of the area, there's still sort of a pristine quality to the natural resources here, which is pretty amazing. It's so interesting to me how where we grow up shapes us. Like I was very much raised in a city, but whenever I'd go to the mountains and I see these tiny kids who can ski from such a young age or, you know, kids who grew up by the coast and are amazing at surfing. So it definitely seems like growing up on the island, you know, shaped a lot of these interests that really came to the fore, especially on this trip we're about to talk about, but all through the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel so fortunate, you know, I mean, so having grown up with parents that like to take us skiing and do things like that. And, you know, I, I think I was talking to one of my oldest friends that grew up with me here. And I just said, you know, can you imagine not knowing the, how to do the things that we know to do just by having grown up where we grew up? I mean, we all know how to surf. We all know how to fish. We all know how to bird hunt and deer hunt. And, you know, all those skills are things that you you really uh, it, it almost inherit over a very, very long period of time. So it's almost effortless that you learned how to do all these things, but that doesn't make it any less special. And I think sometimes um, it takes leaving your hometown to see how fortunate you really are. And I, that was my experience with college. And then uh, later with moving to California, just kind of to see how lucky we were to, to learn all of the skills that we had. And uh, you know, the other thing that was amazing, and I'll, I'm sure we'll touch on this shortly, is, you know, just the the way that my parents raised my brother and I to be polite and kind and respectful and that uh, sort of chivalry of Southern hospitality, it it paid dividends when I got out in the real world. It made making connections and making relationships professionally and socially so much easier. And um, that's something that I actually, when I was in Alaska, I wrote my parents a letter on my 22nd birthday and just told them, thank you for instilling those values and those uh, social skills in me, because it just kept producing positive result after positive result. Mm, that's so true, because I think emotional intelligence is kind of underrated when it comes to like you said, things like networking and getting ahead in your career, because people just want to spend time with people that they like and they get along with at the end of the day. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I remember the first solo guided fishing trip I went on was with a guy that was a super nice guy. He was a CEO or real high up guy with Honeywell. And he had never caught a trout in his life. And we fished hard all day and he just couldn't get one to bite. And uh, at the end of the day, he said, here, you take the rod and you try. Well, first cast, I landed a huge fish and I tried to hand him the rod and he was like, no, I don't want to do it like that. Even though we didn't catch fish, the guy told me that he had an amazing time and he enjoyed spending the day with me. And I always kind of thought about that. Um, on subsequent trips, just that it's really not about catching fish. It's about the experience and meeting people and getting to know people. And I think without having been raised the way that I was raised and where I was raised, I don't think that I would have had uh, that ability to connect with people. So pretty mm -hmm. neat. Let's touch on your college years. So oh, you, 
you said in the pre-interview notes that you were kind of floundering. Do you think it was just regular college kid stuff, like partying and social distractions, or was there more going on behind the scenes? I think I took it a little further than that. I mean, I I was at a very young age diagnosed with ADHD and essentially had never had to uh, fend for myself and be responsible, basically. I mean, you know, every morning my mom woke me up, made sure I got to school. I was not uh, as much of a, uh, I guess, a self-starter or a type A personality. I mean, obviously always very competitive, but more so in a in a athletic sense. But uh, when I went away to school, uh, I just kind of fell into a, a bad sort of pattern, you know, staying out late, not eating healthy, not going to class. And, you know, I, I think I just kind of took it a little too far. I mean, I, I wasn't focused on uh, the things I needed to be focused on. Socially, I was doing great, but academically, um, I was doing really poorly. And later on, my, my social skills, we had a dean of students named Sparky Reardon at Ole Miss and super nice guy. It's an I amazing mean, name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, he, he looks the part and talks <laughs> Um, you can imagine the Southern accent and all, but he taught us a class called university studies. And it was very first class my freshman year. And my friend, Josh Adams, who recently passed away, was in that class with me. And, um, there was a time before my trip to Alaska that I had to call Sparky because my English teacher was going to fail me. And I, if I failed that class, I would not be able to continue at the university. And because of the relationship I developed with Sparky in that class, my freshman year, at the end of my sophomore year, I called him and I said, Sparky, I don't know what to do. I need your help. And he made it, made it so that I didn't fail out of school. And that was kind of the impetus of taking the trip that I took. And uh, when I got back, I made sure that Sparky's efforts were not in vain and, and buckled down and did what I needed to do to get through school and um, actually ended up on the chancellor's honor roll for the last two years of. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. So it really did work. So you, you just decided to take some time off to kind of refocus and regroup. The original plan was to go get a job guiding fishing in Jackson Hole. Why Jackson because Hole specifically? I, I, you know, I think because, well, there was a, there was an outfitter there that was looking for young guides, basically. Mm -hmm. And fly fishing is always a passion of mine. I was pretty gifted at it from the start. Actually, a local guy here named Raz Reed, um, and this is just part of why Hilton had so amazing, just the connections and the familial quality of the people that live here. It's everybody looks out for everybody. So uh, we were getting ready to go on a trip out to Montana. My parents were going to take us out to Montana. And my dad reached out to Raz Reed and said, my sons are, you know, 10 and 12, and they don't know how to fly fish. And Raz has the dream job. He happens to be the sales representative for Sage Fly Rods, which is a pretty famous fly rod company, probably some of the best fly rods in the world. Anyway, so Raz, you know, of course, you know, the, your dream is to get the best fly caster to teach you how to fly cast. And certainly he did. So um, I learned at a young age and it was a passion of mine still is. So when I when I went out to Jackson Hole, the plan was to go apply at this this outfitter. Well, uh, they required that you have a boat and a drift boat. And I didn't have the money to buy a drift boat. So at that point, I wasn't going to bust tables at the mangy moose like some of my friends. I was that just wasn't something I was interested in. I worked in the restaurant business growing up and I wanted something different. I wanted an experience. So 
my dad suggested that I send out, you know, I mean, I probably sent out 300 resumes to 300 different outfitters all over the country, Alaska, Canada, you name it. And I got one response. And the one response wasn't even from the guy I ended up working for. It was from a friend of his that knew that he was looking for help. And that's kind of how the, the trip started. Sounds very fated. It all came together in the end. (laughs) And it worked out too, because the guy actually had a really rare muscle degeneration illness that at the time they had no idea what it was, nor did they know how to cure it. So he really needed me to come and and learn the ropes and uh, so that he could be on some of the trips with some of these clients that he'd worked with for years and years and years. So um, it was just a perfect serendipitous kind of meeting and it worked out great. And the place was called Cooper Landing in Alaska. Have you ever been to Alaska before the trip? <laughs> Funny that you should ask that. We had gone about three weeks before I ended up moving there. My friend Shep and his dad and my dad and me went up and did a little fishing trip up there um, about three weeks before I was contacted by Kurt Trout. Yeah, guy's name's Kurt Trout, by the way, the guy I worked for. Oh, that's really his actual name. He didn't yes. change it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. And it, uh, the company was called Alaska Trout Fitters. It's about 90 miles sort of uh, south and west of Anchorage um, on the Kenai Peninsula. It was just a really, from the start, I mean, it was just an exciting time. I mean, just totally, totally engrossed in that day-to-day never felt more in the moment in my life, never been challenged physically as much. It was just a really, uh, really good experience. And I think part of it, honestly, why it was so, so wonderful is because, you know, my brother was a big mountaineer and I was never really interested in mountaineering. I mean, bivouacking on a, on the side of a mountain in sub-zero temperatures never appealed to me. I mean, I, I would prefer to maybe go on a hike or go fishing and, but I think there was some of me that was kind of uh, looking for adventure of my own and and looking to accomplish something on my own for really self-confidence. And I don't think I knew that that's what I was looking for at the time. But in retrospect, I think it really helped me understand that I was a super capable individual and um, just um, really boosted my overall confidence in so many different ways, uh, not just from a physical standpoint, but from a, a social standpoint, like we were talking about earlier, and um, just a, a neat experience. So I spent a decent proportion of 2021 in grizzly bear country up in Montana and Wyoming, and probably spent quite a lot of time researching what to do if you encounter a bear, what to do if you're attacked by a bear. Were these things that concerned you before you went to Alaska? Did you do any of that kind of preparation or did you just jump in? No, I was pretty fearless at the time, probably more out of stupidity than anything. You know, and I mean, I shouldn't say stupidity. I should say just um, brashness. I mean, we would be, I'd be rowing the drift boat down the river and come around a bend and there would be a bear four feet from me. Um, but we were in a boat and the bear was on the bank and the bears there, fortunately, the bears there are so full and so concerned with gorging on salmon. They really don't want anything to do with you. Now, when you're, when we were walking through the woods, you'd sing and 
make a bunch of noise so that they were aware of your presence. But we tried to kind of not do that very often, especially when the salmon run was happening. But um, just a almost a surreal experience in retrospect, just uh, the sheer size of everything in Alaska and and the just the natural beauty, the physical beauty of it is just a, a truly stunning backdrop. I mean, it's such a different place to Hilton Head Island. It's very remote, very extreme weather, very extreme bears. <laughs> um, yeah. How did you adjust to your new environment? Well, I, I, I tell you, it was crazy. When I got there, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, I'd been on the Kenai Peninsula before, but really had no idea what, I had no expectations. Um, I'd been to Alaska more than once, actually. I, I went when I was probably 17 with my mom and dad, my brother, and then the trip that I just mentioned uh, where we went three weeks before I ended up moving there. So I was familiar with the general area, the Kenai Peninsula. Um, but when I got there, I didn't know what my accommodations were going to be. I didn't know anything. And, you know, the first things first, they walked me around. They had a little motel there. And there was a uh, uh, little house next to the motel, and that's where uh, Kurt and his crew lived, Kurt and Cheryl and Ronnie. Ronnie worked on the North Slope um, as an oil rig guy, and he was 6'6", 300 pounds, big dude. Kurt was um, a great guy, super soft-spoken, and Cheryl was kind of the matriarch of the family. And um, she was loud from West Texas, you know, great, great lady. But she took me around the back of the motel and I was like, where are we going? I thought we were going to go in the motel. We're going around the back of the motel. And sure enough, they point out this uh, six foot by 12 foot trailer. And so that's my accommodations. Well, at least until it got cold. And then they took pity on me and put me up in one of the motel rooms. But yeah, so I mean, it was very real right off the rip. I was like, they let me borrow this little Toyota pickup truck. I drove to Soldatna one day. And uh, when I came back, I had, you know, like a can of Chef Boy RD and like a couple of things that I could make real quick for dinner because I knew we were going to be fishing late. And when Cheryl saw the groceries I brought back, she immediately invited me to dinner that night um, out of pity, I'm sure. But <laughs> again, um, I think we really hit it off because um, it was always yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and a very much a respectful beginning. And, you know, I was up for anything and I was there to to help. I'll tell you a funny story, though. By the time it got really cold, uh, they they said, hey, Andrew, you know, that trailer's going to get cold. Why don't you just stay in the motel and from now until you leave at the end of October? And I said, great. And so I found out that there was a VCR and a TV in the motel rooms. Well, you can imagine the guy to girl ratio in Alaska is as bad as it gets. And, you know, um, so I went to a bar and I guess some of the girls in town, one of the park rangers who was pretty cute, told, uh, found out through the grapevine that I had a VCR and a TV and it was <laughs> like a magnet because that just wasn't a thing there. I mean, so, so it turns out I said, well, why don't you come over and watch a movie sometime? And this girl says, that'd be great. I would love to, you know, hot shower, a movie that all sounded really good to her. Well, when her boyfriend found out that we were talking at this bar, that was the end of that. Um, <laughs> he was like, he told me I looked like a man, only smaller. <laughs> Ouch. No, I said, he said, you're built like a man, only smaller. I think is what he said. <laughs> I had a pool cue in my hand that I still was not willing to go down that road. But yeah, it was uh, that that department was pretty scrappy. I mean, it was uh, Montana's uh, not the place to go if you're single and looking for love. I can tell you that. 
I didn't know about that. I didn't know about this ratio. There's just way more men in Alaska than women. I think, I mean, well, I, in my experience, like mountain towns in general, in, in my experience, it's, it's pretty tough odds. You know, we were just out in Beaver Creek and we, we took the kids out to dinner at this Mexican restaurant and just looking around, I, I said to my wife, I said, Aaron, just look at the ratio in this room. And it was, you know, 32 guys and three girls, wow. two of which, two of which were serving in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> So, but anyway, I, I, you know, at the time I, I just was enjoying myself so much that it made absolutely no difference. And uh, it was just an amazing, amazing time in my life. What was a typical day in your life like? Well, uh, I worked almost every day um, and, and I preferred it that way because I, I was there to, to do, to learn a craft and to work. And, but anyway, uh, different, it's very different there uh, as opposed to, fishing, uh, drift boat fishing on in Montana or Wyoming, they use much larger drift boats, or at least Kurt did. And, you know, they're uh, 18 feet long, and they have four passenger seats in the front of the boat, as opposed to one passenger in the front, one passenger in the back, and then the person rowing the boat in the center. Um, so you're, you're rowing a lot more weight. So a typical day, uh, wake, uh, well, first things first, um, get the trucks turned on because a lot of times they'd be pretty cold from the night. And then we'd hitch up the trailers with the boats, make sure everything was loaded, drive the client, meet the clients at the motel or the fly shop at the motel, load them in the truck, drive to the boat ramp, put the boat in, get the clients in the boat, and then fish all day. For the first part of the year, because the runoff was so significant, the Kenai River was flowing when I got there at about 4,500 cubic feet of water per second, which is pretty torrential. I mean, it's that's a, a serious river. So, you know, learning to, to navigate the river at that time, and this is in June, um, was a real challenge. Just rowing the drift boat from the put-in point to the takeout point, just that four-mile stretch, there was a lot of snags and a lot of rapids and big rocks. So, you know, just learning that took me a good couple of weeks. So Kurt would would go with me every day for that first couple of weeks. And then by the time I had that down, then the CFS had slowed down and we started to float down the canyon section. And the canyon section was, I mean, I guess if you'd asked me to do that today, I would have said no, probably. I mean, it was scary. It was uh, at the beginning of the season on the canyon section, it was probably class four rapids. And doing that in a raft is one thing. Doing it in a 20-foot aluminum drift boat with four paying clients is a whole nother story. Yeah, it's a lot uh, of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but it was really um, challenging, like I said, physically, uh, totally challenging and and mentally extremely t challenging as well. And we were one of the only outfitters that floated that section of the river and the fishing was the best fishing I've ever done in my entire life. Truly an experience that if somebody has an adventurous soul and they want to go, actually, one of the girls that was working in the fly shop when I was working for this company now owns the company. And that was kind of what I was being groomed for, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time. But I can't say that I'm uh, I'm I, I'm super happy that I chose not to go into that field because I think it would have ruined fishing for me. Um, and I just love it so much. So yeah, um, Dusty's her name, and she and I were pals when we were there. And I keep in touch with her, and she's turned it into a thriving business with 
cabins on the river and all kinds of stuff. So I'm looking forward to going back to visit because I think it would be so cool to share that experience with my kids. For sure. Those, these kinds of adventure trips, like the ones that you were hosting, I feel like they've surged in popularity recently, especially, I don't know if you've heard of this one, but Black Tomato, or Black Tomato, <laughs> you're American, this travel company from the UK, they have a, a, a trip called Get Lost, where essentially they, they plan like a, a surprise location. You get dropped off in the middle of nowhere you get given the right equipment and training beforehand, but you don't know what to expect. And then you have to navigate your way through to the endpoint. And there is like a support team watching you from afar to make sure nothing goes wrong. But I think it's interesting that these kinds of trips have become so popular because I think that you touched on this earlier, but this kind of self-reliance and you know living attuned with the natural environment, I think can really build self-trust and self-confidence. Is that what yeah. you experienced while you were there in Alaska? I would say yes. I think the big thing for me, the big takeaways were being totally engaged. You know, because of my uh, struggle with ADHD, I think I'm most happy when I'm in an extremely pressurized, difficult, challenging situation. Um, and it took me a long time to learn that about myself. In fact, I, I was just looking around for audiobooks to read. I like to listen to audiobooks while I go for runs in the morning. And uh, um, I finally I downloaded this audiobook, and it was called The ADHD Advantage. And I started listening to it. And then about halfway through the book, I'm, I'm in the garage listening to the book Tink, doing some pretty serious tinkering, you know, putting something back together that probably required more attention than I realized. And I'm listening to the audiobook and it says, if you're the kind of person that's listening to this audiobook while doing something immensely difficult and still able to pay attention to both things, you probably have ADHD very badly. And I'm like, whoa, that was weird. But this book talks about ADHD in a way that nobody had ever spoken to me about it. It, it basically says that you know, the people high on the spectrum of ADHD are probably the people that back in ancient times were protecting the village from famine, uh, other uh, fighting tribes. And so reading that book really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's why when we've had hurricanes that hit the restaurant, I feel like I'm hyper focused and super engaged and i love making those difficult decisions that really make a difference the decisions that most people get really scared about i'm in, i'm enjoying that moment i remember when the pandemic was kind of raging and we didn't know what was going to happen there was a lot of uncertainty out there i had to stop myself and say why am i enjoying this like, why am I enjoying being under the gun? And why am I enjoying having to make these critical decisions? And, you know, I just think it's part of like who I am. And I um, now that I kind of understand that better. And I think that trip to Alaska helped me understand in some small way that I'm not going to be very good at sitting still or sitting at a desk. And I'm totally capable of of doing it that way and and totally capable of creating a life for myself that can uh, be enjoyable and also fulfilling.
There's a feeling you get when you arrive on America's favorite island, Hilton Head Island. It's a feeling inspired by wide open beaches and strolls under oak trees draped with Spanish moss, by low country sunrises you never tire of, and sunsets spent together. This dreamy place is created by nature and designed by the tides, the salt air, and the soft evening breezes. This feeling is one you'll keep chasing and only find here on Hilton Head Island. That's so interesting and I've never heard that about ADHD before, but that makes a lot of sense. It's like those extreme situations help you to stay present and completely focused. That's right. And and it's it for me it's it's almost I have to I've I've basically made my job at the restaurant fit those parameters. I don't sit down and check email. I don't, I mean, I do sometimes um, if I have to, but I try to make my life and my job fit my personality rather than the other way around, if that makes sense. And I've been afforded the opportunity to do that because I'm in business for myself, which is great. But I'll, I'll say this, the, the last year, you know, we do a lot of different uh, things throughout the year. We do a big community Thanksgiving dinner where we serve 1600 people free Thanksgiving dinner. We do, we put on a big week long seafood festival in February and we didn't do either of those things in what was it calendar year 2021. And it was like a big part of me was taken away because those things help me stay so busy that I'm engaged all the time. And uh, not having them, I was pretty lost in November, December, and January because I, I, it, there was a void there. So I have to be very mindful of keeping myself super duper busy and keeping myself engaged in things that are new and interesting. You know, the happiest times of my life are when I'm, uh, you know, under extreme pressure. And so having had that realization in Alaska, how did you apply that once you left, went back to college and started to think about what, what the future held for you? Well, I mean, that's kind of a sad chapter. So when I got back from Alaska, my brother, when I left for Alaska, my brother had been doing really well. Um, he had uh, non-testicular uh, germ cell uh, carcinoma, which is a very rare cancer that um, some young people get. But he he was doing really well when I left, and um, I think uh, got some bad news uh, a few weeks before I got back, which kind of accelerated my return. So rather than going home to Hilton Head or back to Mississippi, I picked my truck up in Jackson. Some my friends had had used my truck for the summer, and drove straight to Houston, where my brother was getting ready to start treatment for um, at MD Anderson, and we spent some good time together. Though he was pretty ill uh, from the chemo. And we went and saw a Halloween concert, widespread panic in New Orleans. Um, and that was a, an amazing time together. And then we went home. We spent Christmas together. I went back to school in January and he was traveling the world. And I could kind of see that he was doing that because he didn't know how long he had. And he called me from Colorado and, you know, basically said, I mean, it wasn't as eloquent, but I could tell he was kind of probably saying goodbye. And then he went down to Costa Rica with Walter Wilkins, who's also a good friend of mine now. Um, when he was down in Costa Rica, he started having issues with his balance. And then 
they rushed him to the hospital in San Jose and that was that he, he passed away down there. So then we went down to Costa Rica, uh, got him, brought him back to MD Anderson. There's nothing they could do. So we buried him. I wanted to stay home from school and my parents said, no, you're going back to school. Again, Sparky Reardon helped me get through that, missing all that school when I was gone. Yeah. I mean, when I got back to school, it was kind of like, I mean, the playtime's over and I buckled down and just worked, worked, worked and, you know, extremely sad time. But um, I kind of think I kind of just decided I needed to turn that whole experience into a positive and, and do right. I think some of it was that I wanted my parents to be happy um, in some small way. But either way, I, I buckled down and got it done and glad I did. That is such a tough loss. I'm really sorry. I'm sure that still is horribly painful. Well, I think it is. Um, I think, you know, and, and um, it's interesting. I, I still think of myself as my a peer of my employees, which is ridiculous because they're like in their 20s and I'm 43. And <laughs> But, you know, the other night we had a little holiday party outside, of course, because we didn't want to spread around COVID. But we had a little holiday party for our employees. And, you know, I had one of my employees who's just this vibrant young girl. She She came up to me and she said, you know, I just want to tell you how inspired I am by you and your family and what you've done to to honor your brother. And she said, I just don't know how you can do that and talk about it because I'm not there. I lost my brother four years ago and I just can't, I can't even bring myself to talk about him. And I just told her, I said, you know, when my brother passed away, I think the the best way that I could think of to honor him was and to keep him alive was to try to emulate his best qualities and try to uh, live my life and do things for other people in a way that he would appreciate. Um, and so I think that's kind of helped as therapy for me. Um, my parents set a great example, you know, months after my brother died, they started a foundation that um, raises money and supports local nonprofits, national nonprofits, cancer research, so on and so forth. And I was, you know, kind of lucky that they did that. I don't know that I would have had the 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 skill or the motivation to do that. So when I moved back to Hilton Head, we really tried to grow that. And um, we've successfully created a fundraiser that raises a lot of money. I mean, we've donated, I think this year we'll donate our millionth dollar to charities that conserve the environment and uh, support working families and just uh, uh, it has a very broad reach. And I think uh, something that helps make our community a better place to live. That's amazing. Do you think that the loss of your brother was part of the reason why you did return home to Hilton Head? No, I don't think so. Um, I think, well, so my I worked at the restaurant growing up. My parents bought the place in 74 and I worked you know, it was mostly a punishment early on. Um, didn't do your homework, clean cigarette butts up in the parking lot kind of thing. And then as I got older, I'd bust tables. And um, I don't think I realized how much pride I had in the place. And in 2003, I was visiting Hilton Head and brought a girl back with me and um, went to the restaurant and it was just a disaster. I mean, the the employees were clowning around, the food was terrible, place was empty, and it made me really angry. And so I went back to California. I think I called my parents and I was like, what's going on? That was a disaster. And they took it kind of personally. 
we didn't talk about that for a while after that. And then in 2000, late 2005, we were at a friend of mine's wedding in New Orleans and my parents happened to be there. And this is, I had met Aaron at that point, um, my wife. And um, my dad kind of gave me the ultimatum. He said, look, if you don't want to come back and help out with the restaurant, we're going to sell it. And I said, over my dead body and I moved back and uh, best decision I ever made. I mean, I'm, I'm loving raising my kids here one, but uh, just to, to have done that and to have had the success that we've had growing the business and to be doing things in a way that gives me true joy. I don't know that I would have found that as much as I have had I not made the decision to come back. And I know sustainable and local seafood is a big part of the business and something you're really passionate about. How did you learn about that and then start implementing it through your work? I think the the move to California really opened my eyes to a lot of that. I mean, you know, if I'd stayed in Mississippi or Hilton Head uh, the whole time, I don't think that I ever would have, I don't think that I would have been as uh, forward thinking as mm-hmm. I was after living in California. You know, I think California is trying to, they let their environmental situation kind of get out of control. And that's why it's so important to me that we protect what we have, you know, and then you see it, you've seen it up in the Chesapeake Bay area and places like that, where they let it get out of hand before they really got involved in fixing it. What, what we're trying to do here is keep it pristine. Um, and so that's a big part of what I do on a day-to-day basis is, is try to understand and learn more about the local ecosystem and, you know, what effects we're having on it. And, you know, we, we've started, a, a about 2015, we started a little oyster farming operation and we're in the process of trying to grow that now. And I, I, I'm trying to be as involved as I can with different nonprofits that focus on conservation. Um, I'm on the board at the Port Royal Sound Foundation um, and they, they're more, on the research and education side. So um, we all, we, every, everybody's learned over the years that education plays a huge role in environmental conservation. Um, so they're kind of on the research and, and education side. And then I just took a position on the board at the Coastal Conservation League, which I've wanted to be on the board for five years. And it's been, uh, I've never asked them to be on the board and they just called me out of the blue and invited me to do that. And, they're more of an advocacy firm. So if somebody's doing something that they shouldn't be doing to the environment, they are, a lot of them are environmental lawyers, which it's kind of coincidental because my brother wanted to be an environmental lawyer, but you know, they'll sue people for not doing the right thing. So um, I'm super excited um, to get that chapter going. I think I have my first board meeting with them in March. So just any way I can be involved and do things that I know are the right thing to do. It just makes me feel better and makes me, it just seems to make my whole life make more sense and Mm. and makes it more, I don't know, more engaging and fulfilling. And I think there's some really positive work being done. And um, I think that's a, a, not only a good thing for my soul, but also to, to something to pass along to my kids. Um, and, and set a really positive example for not only my children, but the 120 employees that we have and, and just the community at large. Um, I think doing things and setting a positive example 
just kind of how I was raised. My parents instilled uh, community service in my brother and I at a very, very young age. It wasn't if you were going to be involved, it was how you were going to be involved. So I think those lessons are pretty valuable. Absolutely. It's so important. And I know that you also helped start the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival. Tell us about that. Well, okay. So that started, my parents started the foundation for my brother in 2003. My brother was, a, as I mentioned before, an avid outdoorsman and kayaking was one of his many hobbies. Um, so my parents started what was called the DMC Water Festival, which had a, a kayaking component, a race, a poker paddle, a fishing tournament, and then they did a golf tournament in the fall every year. That event was in the spring. And it started out at the restaurant. It was about 300, 400 people. Um, when I came back in 2006, uh, they had made the decision to move that event to the Shelter Cove Community Park, which is a fairly large outdoor facility. Well, the park kind of swallowed the event, and it was a, a little bit embarrassing because I just don't think the DMC Water Festival had enough of a draw to fill that space. So the following year, we um, relaunched that event as the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival. And I felt weird about doing that because I think my parents uh, liked that the festival had my brother's name on it. And I didn't want to destroy any work that they'd done or interfere or, or meddle. But I thought long and hard about it. And I said, well, what, what, is, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to honor him by having his name on a festival? Or are we trying to raise money for these nonprofits and do things that he would want us to do? And the answer was pretty clear to me that if we could make this something that raised a whole bunch of money and we could give that money to people that are going to do really, really great things with it, I think that's a better solution. And so it didn't happen overnight, but the first year we knew that the Hilton Head Island Seafood Festival was going to be a success. Um, and then over the years, we've just grown it to a whole week of events with cooking classes, celebrity chefs coming in from out of town, uh, big fancy wine dinners, pig pickings and oyster roasts, um, fireworks, you know, it's really turned into something that I could have never imagined that it would be the draw that it is. I mean, I think one year we had like 16,000 people and the town of Hilton had called me and chewed me out because I caused a huge traffic jam in February. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just was one of those things that if you'd told me in 2006 that we would have uh, caused a traffic jam on the bridge in the middle of February, which in 2006, there was nobody here in February. Yeah, it's been it's been a dream and something that has afforded us the opportunity to 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 fund outfits like the Port Royal Sound Foundation, the Coastal Conservation League. And, uh, you know, a, a big thing about Hilton Head, too, is the community is amazing. People serve the community here without question in so many different ways. And a lot of people that move here from elsewhere can't even believe it. We uh, have just a, an amazing spirit of volunteerism here. We have a, a free medical clinic that was started by a group of doctors here that basically services everyone and anyone that shows up at the door. Um, we have all kinds of after-school programs for pre-K kids, for working families that um, can't pick their kids up after school. And, and our organization, our foundation, the David M. Carmine's Foundation, funds a lot of those programs, um, which, you know, it benefits everybody. We're always looking for other nonprofits to to share with, to try to make the community that we live in 
that much better. Well, Andrew, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. You have lived a very adventurous life and you do so much for your community. And I hope that we will get to meet in person one day. Yes, me too. Before you go, I'd love to do a quick fire round with you. Oh, uh, not that quick, but yes. What is the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Having children, I think. I mean, I, 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 I think having children changed my life as much as anything has. I have some friends that will probably get mad at me for saying that, but seeing life come into the world in that way. And um, interestingly, you know, I told the story about my dad delivering me on the uh, bench of the pickup truck. Well, when we had uh, our first child, Alice, I was completely gobsmacked. I was acting brash in the delivery room and joking around. And, you know, when the when Alice came out, I was completely floored, totally in tears. It was just an incredible, incredible experience to see that happen. Second time around with Millie, two years later, we had a really cool OBG, or Aaron had a really cool OBGYN, and I won't say her name because uh, I don't want to incriminate, but um, I was again joking around in the delivery room, being a clown, and I kind of slapped my hands together and did the Miyagi thing and said, so when are we going to deliver this baby? And she looked at me deadpan and said, do you want to deliver the baby? And I said, are you serious? And she said, yes. And she said, all right, put your scrubs on. There oh they are right there, put them on. So I put them on and she let me deliver my second child, which was probably one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. That's wild. Um, and kind of brought things full circle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think having kids changed my life and that you realize in very short, I remember Alice had the flu on Christmas at one and some change years old. and. Uh, you realize very quickly that your life is no longer about you and how and how how important it is to care for and and the fact that you do anything in the world for your children. And I think uh, that kind of put into perspective my brother's passing and a lot of other things and uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of things. That's the first time someone's given that answer, but it's a really obvious answer when you think about it. So I appreciate I that. <laughs> I know. I like I was I could have said like skydiving, but yeah. I've never done that before. So. <laughs> what do you never ever travel without? Um, I never travel without a knife. And that's gonna sound weird, but I I you know, it, in air travel it's a little tricky. So you have to, to check the baggage. But you know, I think my rule with traveling is that. I will not check anything that I would need to have a great time at whatever destination I'm going to. So if we, like, we would do a lot of like fly fishing trips in, in Central America, uh, Montana, wherever. And a lot of the locations that you go to, you're not getting another plane to bring your luggage that day or the next day a lot of times. And sometimes there's a boat involved in getting said luggage to where you are. And so our rule was always to pack everything that we needed to enjoy fishing, skiing, whatever it is the activity was, everything that you needed to enjoy that trip was in your carry-on luggage. And I think that's, uh, if I can give good travel advice, I guess that would be it. 
that's very smart because one time I went to Nicaragua and it was a 10 day trip. My luggage didn't arrive until like day six. So that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I learned the hard way. If you were, I don't know what you were doing in Nicaragua, but you probably could have gone, gotten away with like a good pair of flip flops, a toothbrush and a bikini or a, a bathing suit. I did suit. actually, I had this weird premonition just before I got on the flight and I pulled out a bikini, like I think a dress and my toothbrush and some makeup. And I was like, thank God. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I guess the sensible answer would be to probably say that I would go somewhere that I've never been. But man, tropical surf trip in the Maldives, maybe. I've thought about that a lot. And I've based my life on basically having what I need, you know, in terms of financial resources. Basically, I'm not somebody that's motivated in that way by money. Um, I just never have been. But there's a caveat to that. The only caveat to the fact that I'm completely happy with being comfortable and nothing more is that the lack of a private jet. <laughs> I would love to have a private plane. That's the only reason I can think of to have be uber wealthy is to, to have your own plane. Like, like there's something about the, the allure of that that I think the value of a private plane and a pilot, like, you know, let's say that you'd have to pay. million for a private plane. Like that seems worth it to me. Like most things that cost $25 million, I'm like, no, no (laughs) way. Like I wouldn't, I would never buy like a Ferrari for $200,000. Like, but I would, if I had $25 million and I could afford it, I would buy a plane because that just is the ultimate freedom to be able to say, all right, let's go to Costa Rica tomorrow. Oh, so. yeah, that would be pretty sweet. Well, Andrew, something to aspire to, you know, two years. Uh, <laughs> that Maybe my kids will buy me a plane. <laughs> What's a podcast show or book that you'd recommend for a long flight? Oh, uh, wow. If it's like a uh, like a page turner type situation, um, like a novel, there's a short book called uh, City of Thieves that's really good. It's sort of a, it's a good adventure book. Pillars of the Earth another good, like, epic page turner if you're, like, looking for something to take up the next month of your life. I kind of like those because then I don't have to, like, find more books. Um, nonfiction, I just uh, read Undaunted Courage, which is the story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. That's pretty amazing. Uh, what those guys were able to accomplish at, at that time in history is pretty mind-boggling. Um, but I, I love adventure books. Oh, another one. Oh no, I can't. Unbroken. If you Unbroken is one of the best nonfiction books I've ever read. I my wife almost divorced me because I'd have my headphones in at the dinner table because I just couldn't stop. I mean, I was like, you know, outside in the yard doing yard work and listening to the book, and it's just a really cool survival story. I is mean, that the one that sense. was made into a film a few years back? Yeah, I don't think the film's very good though. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is, but I it, uh, usually I'm disappointed with the films that come after the movie. It's mm-hmm. it's just so engrossing when you when you're you know reading or listening to the story. But yeah, I, I think um, as I've gotten, I always used to think it was so weird that my dad would read constantly, and now I'm doing the same thing. I mean, I, <laughs> I always have more than one book going at a time, and it's just so funny. You know, when you're growing up, you kind of look at your parents like, well, I'm not going to be like that when I get older. And the older I get, the more I am like my parents. So it's it's pretty interesting. 
What's a must-try seafood dish from South Carolina? I think our shrimp here are very, very special. They have a, a texture and a sweetness unlike any shrimp that I've ever had anywhere else in the world. And that's not just saying South Carolina, okay? So that would be like the northeast coast of Florida, like St. Augustine up to the central North Carolina area. They kind of are all, it tastes similar from that region. But I think somebody that is visiting should certainly uh, try that because, you know, you I've been to you know, really, really upscale restaurants in places like New York. And, and um, I still never tasted shrimp that are of the quality and flavor that we have here. So I think certainly shrimp, and I think people should try our oysters in the winter from here as well. Um, they're really, really special. And it's warm here. So there's a big difference between our summertime oysters and our wintertime oysters. And I think everybody should try uh, raw oysters or, or roasted oysters from, from the low country for sure. Are the shrimp better because of the temperature of the water or what is it that makes them sweeter? You know, I think it's what they eat. You know, we have um, a lot of what's called Spartina grass here. And because we have such big tides and uh, such salty water, that Spartina grass is, uh, floats around in these big piles called rack. It's been explained to me, and I've read a little bit about it, that the because the water is so buoyant, because it's so salty, and because the tides are so big, they're pushing that around as opposed to having it just sink to the bottom where it can't react with the sun. And that Spartina grass ultimately decays or slowly decays and reacts with the sun and photosynthesis takes place and it uh, creates algae. And that algae is why we have such a fantastic nursery for aquatic critters, uh, shrimp, oysters, blue crabs. Uh, so it's it's kind of a, a unique thing to this area. Um, you know, our tides here, uh, as compared to just 30 miles north of here, they our tides rise and fall between six and 10 feet. And um, if you wanted to see a tide that big on the east coast, you'd have to go all the way to Maine. And it's because of how we're kind of tucked back to the, I guess you'd say to the west of most of our neighbors, because we're kind of in that little corner there where mm. Florida juts out and North Carolina juts out. So our tides are a little bigger here. That's very interesting. Um, and finally, where is next on your bucket list? I would like to go. I think I'm scared. Okay. I'm going to say I'm scared to go because I'm afraid that I'm going to stay there. Um, <laughs> I want to go to, I want to go to New Zealand because I think that I'm going to like it a lot. They, it has some of the best point breaks in the world for surfing. It has amazing trout fishing, uh, very few people, which is um, what I like to do when I go on vacation. I like to be in the middle of nowhere. I just think I'm going to really fall in love with it. And I'm a little bit concerned because um, having a, a busy, busy business or multiple busy, busy businesses, I'm worried that I'm going to want to visit there frequently. I hope not, but um, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Yeah, you know, I don't know you very well, but I can totally see you in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I have a feeling that it would be right up my alley. I mean, they it love oysters down there. They like good wine. Yeah, very um, adventurous country. Loads of beautiful yeah. scenery. It's gorgeous. I got to earmark a lot of time, though, for the trip. I mean, that's like a three or four. Oh, my God. Trip. It's so far. Yeah. <laughs> Big journey. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you so much. It was so nice meeting you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.